You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Warning. This episode contains content about excavating human remains that some listeners may find disturbing. Welcome to episode four of Trial Tales, Stories from the Field. On this episode, we're going to get into stories about excavating and studying human remains. It's a controversial topic and can be an incredibly emotional subject. For some archaeologists, removing human remains and studying the bones is just another part of the job. For other archaeologists, it is seen as something that should be avoided at all costs. Or it can even be a mix of all of the above. Outside of the field, Uncovering skeletons during professional excavation gets all kinds of reactions from wow, cool, to accusations of grave robbing. There are major cultural and religious differences too in how people view the study of human remains. Unfortunately, there are examples of early archaeologists in the United States digging up the graves of prehistoric peoples without any thought to their descendants. Even though practices have changed quite dramatically over the years, as well as cultural resource management laws and the ways we protect human remains, the fact that there is a large range of opinions is not surprising. I spoke to a bioarchaeologist about her experiences of working with human remains. I mean, I won't get into specifics about time frame or anything, but, you know, just individuals that were probably young males and you could see obvious trauma to their cranium and that always makes me sad because they were so young and then you could see that well it looks like infection might have set in and it's like if they lived with this trauma for a long enough for an infection to start that's just you know you kind of feel for them it's sad and and sometimes like the, the infants and stuff, when you can tell that they were buried with such care and they were loved and that's always, you know, kind of sad. You know, you just try to treat the remains as if they're, they're living people, like they were living people. They had lives and, and, you know, thoughts and feelings and people cared about them. And it's like, you have to still, still kind of go with that. And, you know, there's ancestors and other people who, still, you know, have strong connections to them, even though they never knew them personally. So, so you just kind of have to take, take that into account when you're looking at remains, I think. A lot of times people who are archaeologists act like working with the burials and human remains and whatnot is a, like some kind of like blue ribbon or like a badge that they've earned like oh yeah I've done that I'm really cool and it's like no it's like first of all it's not I don't like that they have to be disturbed to begin with I mean I like to think of it as salvage work more than anything I don't want to go in and disturb them unnecessarily but sometimes you know in order for progress to be made it happens and it's unfortunate but you know it's best to handle it with as much care and respect as possible so they can eventually you know sooner as opposed to later be given back to the right people who will rebury them and hopefully give them their final resting place where they won't have to be disturbed again. What it boils down to is the need for respect and to treat the remains with care. This need for respect begins from discovery in the field to its potential removal. 
It isn't common for, to find a burial while doing a basic survey, but it does happen. It can be a unique and unnerving experience. All right, so this is actually about the first time I ever encountered human remains, which can be a tense subject with some folks, and it affected me pretty profoundly. So I was working, we were working on a project that was like east of the Bighorn Mountains up in Wyoming. And it was a Saturday. I had volunteered to go out in the field because usually I'm in the office. So any kind of field time is always fun. Although it was early, so we were driving around the project on some of the pre-existing roads that were there. And I was sleeping in the front driver's seat. And all of a sudden the lady who was driving stops and like wakes me up. Seth, look out your window. I'm like, what? Look out, and in the cut bank of the road, you can see a human skull. It's just sitting right there. So I uttered some expletives, and then woke up the guy behind me, and asked him to look out the window, and he had a very similar reaction to, to me. So we, we stopped, everybody got out of the car, and we're looking around, and uh, so there's a skull, you can see some bone exposed, other bone. We didn't do any kind of excavation there because we had to alert the proper authorities. There's a whole big rigmarole that needs to be done when you find human remains. But we, we, we could see the skull, and then we could also see a little uh, charcoal lens in the cup bank. So it was a, there was a fire there too, about the same level, so it might be um, at the same time. But so later, we're back in town, everybody's at the bar, as things go, and uh, they're all talking about it. Like, oh, you know, when I was in school, we had osteology, and we had to look at all these bones. It's like, well, I didn't do any of that stuff. I, I made pottery in school. So I didn't have any kind of experience with dead people. It's like, this, like that's, a, that's a person. It's not a collection of bones. It's a person. They had a life. They knew people. And then they're somehow found themselves out on the plains of Wyoming, and they're dead. I guess later the University of Wyoming excavated the actual site and uh, was a woman about 35. I think she was a couple of thousand years old. But it wasn't really a barrel because she was face down. So it was weird. Um, I, I missed the uh, presentation about the, about the project. It was at a conference, but I had a friend that saw it and she told me about it. But but it's like it was a person and then they had a story and we don't know what what it was other than where they ended up so that's that's actually one of the things that i find most interesting about archaeology about how you can actually look at it as personal stories as opposed to like it's not a culture it's not the ancestral puebloans or the hohokam like there was a person there and they made that uh like arrowhead or they made that painting it was a person it was totally different then you, you can't look around and see transmission lines there or other roads they were there traveling to someplace else for their own reasons what those are federal and state cultural resource management laws in the united states protect graves and dictate the instances in which human remains may be excavated and possibly studied by professional archaeologists and forensic anthropologists these laws 
such as the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, outlined the process of returning human remains. There is a lot involved. Consequently, the excavation of human remains is typically a last resort action. It is an incredibly careful process with ongoing conversations with local communities, interest groups, and Native American tribes. Typically, at least in the United States, the only time when burials are excavated are during major projects in which the remains will be disturbed or possibly destroyed if nothing were done. I spoke to three archaeologists who excavated a cemetery due to major road construction. We're going to talk about an excavation we did um, in New Jersey. It was a cemetery project with a big old crew. There were, how many of us were there? I think at any one time there was between 50 and 60 field technicians and then supervisors in addition. It started small and then it- Then it ballooned. It ballooned and then it went small again, but it was over nine months, 10 months. You were there the longest for February. I to, think you were there almost a year. February to November. We were I there. Think. Yeah, because we were six, seven months. Yeah, because we were there through Halloween. Folks were shunted off to do other projects, and we stayed for reburial. Aaron Wait, got to drive the box truck. Yes, I was given the keys to a shoddy old box truck with about. 500 boxes full of human remains in the back with no additional paperwork I'm told to, <laughs> to drive to drive, safe, drive across the Jersey Turnpike <laughs> to the place where we are reburying these individuals what should I do if I get pulled over or anything don't <laughs> <laughs> that's the best advice we have <laughs> There's no permit for anything like this anywhere, right? <laughs> you will have no company information on you. Good luck. He will disavow all knowledge of your activities. I promise, officer, I'm not a psychopath. <laughs> this, isn't a, this isn't a weird collection of mine. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was a huge project. It was in the 4,600 bodies were exhumed in advance of a... Parking, parking garage. Parking garage along the Jer Jersey Turnpike for the train. Yeah, for the commuter rail. It's a nice parking garage. We've parked there. Oh, have you seen it? Mm -hmm. I've never been back. Mm -hmm. But this cemetery was uh, a potter's field, a the cemetery for a tuberculosis ward. Mental hospital. For Also for a mental hospital. And then eventually, uh, Children's Detention Center was yeah. built over it. Yeah, eventually, Juvenile Detention Center. And it kind of turned into a dump. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then the tur turnpike was built over it. Yes. So it was a jumbled... It was a mess. It was a mess. It was a mess. Well, I remember when we got there, it had only recently been discovered that there was a second layer of individuals buried like graves that nobody was aware of like surprise more more dead people <laughs> but i feel like it makes sense for this project to be just interrupted because <laughs> <laughs> it was such a mess what was the time frame looking like um when like uh the oldest body like from what was the time frame period wise 
I want to say 1880s to 1960s. 63 was definitely the last burial. Yeah. I don't recall the first. I remember we had some individuals with Civil War medals on them, mm-hmm. um, which obviously the, that date range would make sense. But I don't know if it went back to the 1870s or not. I just don't remember. I feel like it did, but I don't know. Yeah. Offhand. Um, so it was... Because it was a potter's field, the way that the method of interring individuals there, they dug a grave shaft and someone would die and they would put a wooden casket with the body inside the shaft and the shaft would stay open for a couple days until another body came. And then they would stack the caskets on top of each other, then backfill. And like Sarah said, there was kind of two cemeteries on one because once they ran out of space in the cemetery, they went to those kind of the same shafts. And dug another shaft on top of it, so you'd have two more bodies on top of the original two. And then over time, they kind of all just collapsed into a wooden bone jumbled mess. <laughs> so what mark. was it like yeah. to have to excavate something like that? Excavation is a stretch of a word. Um, it, was a, it was a removal. It was removal more than excavation, but... Uh, Complicated, messy, not under ideal scientific conditions, circumstances, or timelines. And it didn't help that you're in the Jersey Meadowlands and it's swamp. And so mm. you're dealing with yes. groundwater that goes up and down. It's tidal. So it, exactly. So in the morning, it might be... Help me out with the tides. Wet. <laughs> and then the afternoon is dry or vice versa. Right. I grew up in Wisconsin. We don't have tides there. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. There were definitely some parts where it was muddy or you thought your the shaft you were working in was, was just going to be muddy. And then you end up shoulder deep in... New Jersey water. And there were snapping turtles everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and fish of sharks. <laughs> now, um, trying to figure out what was down there and fishing for remains. And that was... Most of the remains. Long bones. Yeah. Yeah, long bones. Skulls. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And because it was tidal, not everything was as decomposed as it could have been. Yeah, especially things that were in the mid-20th century. Yeah, that was gross. Were Fatty tissues. Brains. Brains. Hair. 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 Did that really stick with you? I didn't excavate a lot of the shafts. I wasn't doing more of the backhoe monitoring, so... I didn't experience that so much, but there was definitely individuals that were highly affected by, mm-hmm. uh, really um, adversely affected by the experience. Some left the project, some muscled through. Others might be just permanently damaged. I don't know. They started out they, that they, way. They came into the project that way. Uh, I had nightmares of sorts for about a week after we were done with yeah. everything. Like it was fine going through it wasn't you know ideal but it's important work it was important work Mm -hmm. you know it needed to be done and under the circumstances it was 
you know, as done as well as it could have been, but just to process it all, because how often do you see, what, almost 5,000, you know, the remains of almost 5,000 individuals uh-huh. in one place? You don't. No. You don't really want to. <laughs> Not really. And then for some reason, I don't know why, I think it was because it was found near the morgue, which was, the morgue is where the bodies were housed, which was the detention center, one of the buildings of the old detention center. And I remember, I don't know if you guys recall, remember the, the mason jar with the fetus? Did you? Yeah. I had completely forgotten. It was yeah, probably like right. a, it was probably like a hospital specimen. So it was a quart jar or a pint jar, but it actually had... So it was probably, you know, capped with formaldehyde or saline or whatever liquid they had in there with the, I think they said like a five-month-old fetus in there. And it was just kind of tossed tossed into a grave shaft. And one of the field techs who was an incredible woodworker, I mean, it just, it hit home for him. He had a really hard time with it. So he made, he made the jar its, its own coffin. I mean, he went and mm-hmm. took a couple weeks and he was one of the ones very affected by the project as a whole. But he made a handmade coffin for that jar, and it got reinterred at the new cemetery. But I had completely forgotten about. Wow, I didn't remember that. Yeah, yeah, I'd forgotten about that too. Yeah. And weren't there a couple bodies found in shower curtains? Because New Jersey, Hoffa. There's <laughs> <laughs> one. Yeah, I remember the. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. One. And it was like 1950s. Yeah. Floral. And I believe there was a bullet recovered bouncing around in that skull. Oh, really? I, I know there was a bullet totally recovered a... in at least one of the skulls. Yeah, I think a couple. Yeah. And then there was the guy who was, they think he was hit by a train or fell off a building. It was yeah. like every bone was shattered. Um, mm-hmm. Pre-mortem. Just shattered. Yeah. And then oh, the guy with the shoulder. Remember, he like dislocated his shoulder and it never got reset into position. So he had like a second socket on his scapula. I don't think I saw that. Oh, that was just like spectacular in like a weird osteological sense because it was just you know you had your normal socket and then the other one sorry nerding out the other one was like two inches lower and it had completely like carved into the bone to form a second how painful right and i mean i'm sure it's just arms let's take a quick break The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. We'll continue with the stories from the large-scale excavation of a New Jersey cemetery. One of my most vivid memories from that project is having to go into the body storage the morgue, which is in the old dormitory of the juvenile detention facility, 
during a lightning storm <laughs> when it was dark and there was no power in there anyway. I can't say most of that project got to me, but that was a lot of bad vibes stacked on top of other bad vibes. To be like so cliche, it's like the end of Raiders of the Lost exactly. Ark, and it's just box upon box, and it's just your, there's no end to the aisles of. Oh. <laughs> Well, and you had to go through that to get to one of the areas we were excavating, too. I remember traipsing through the morgue, you know, every day for a period of time to get to that that. backside. Oh, you're right. Because, yeah, there was, like, that whole extension of the cemetery on Uh the other other end of that. Yeah. When we thought we were done, but we were not done. Right? That was the story of that project is, oh, we're done. Never mind. More cemetery. The, when the juvenile detention center was built, I, they didn't care that there was a cemetery there. And that was really apparent when I was excavating a partial shaft um, that went into like a big concrete pier for the parking lot slash safety lights. And so it was some, an individual's you know lower half. I don't even think... The pelvis was there. It was just like part of the pelvis just and the legs and just legs, and the rest of the body was just gone. And that and stuff like that is why, like, this excavation was so important because the people in the cemetery just got screwed. Yeah, yeah. And after it was abandoned in 1963, the term you know all these things were built on it, and whatever headstones were there, which were numbered markers they were kind of these cylindrical numbered markers they had been shaved off so we didn't find a single one of those in situ but we found them scattered in the back dirt so you could come across one with a stamp and Mm -hmm. so it was interesting though because you know everything was mapped and we had the historic map of the cemetery so using in you know a row would go in one direction for a while and then kind of turn to the northeast or whatever direction and you could see that on the maps so you could count shafts to be like this could be so-and-so individual so there was some identification mm-hmm. made uh, based on osteology analysis and and the historic maps mm-hmm. and occasionally because of artifacts that were found with the individuals not so much but some of them some of them like the metals helped and there was the one woman who was interred with a full makeup kit and, and that was really cool. And I think they were able to figure out who she was because of the makeup kit and because of osteological features. Didn't she have downs? I don't recall that. It was totally flapper era. I remember that part yeah. of it. Yeah. said there was a box and glass eyes. And oh, glass eyes, wigs. Glass eyes, wigs. It's a little unnerving oh. to come down on somebody's skull and have them look at you. Oh, the Ziegler box is what you're talking about. The Ziegler box is a metal box that we're in, I guess, you know, building morgue, real morgues, not the detention center morgue, where the, they would pull the individual out and there would be a glass viewing window on the top of the metal box. And one of those, for some reason, was buried. The whole metal box with the body inside was buried in the cemetery. I thought it was to keep the tuberculosis in the coffin. Is that why? Not getting out everywhere. <laughs> and there we are, to, digging it up. To contain the tuberculosis. Or yeah. vampire. But anyway, that was, I think whoever was digging that, they came across something and was like, what did I just hit? I think there was, like, lucky coins. There was that $20 gold piece from yep. 1879. That was pretty special considering it was a potter's field. It was found by the guys 
what would be his pocket of his, you know, trousers. Mm-hmm. It's really amazing that he was buried with that. Yeah. And it was never... Because that was the other thing that was surprising. A lot of individuals with gold teeth. Mm-hmm. And you kind of would have thought back in that day that they may have been extracted prior to burial, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of people with gold teeth. Mm-hmm. And all that stuff got reinterred. Yes. With individuals. With, with each individual body. Um, Were there... Like, considering preservation, um, was there anything that was preserved so well that you were really shocked that, like, clothing or anything along those lines, you're like, whoa, I can't believe that actually was in the, still there. I think there was a couple of wooden coffins mm, that, that, survived were, that, well. that survived that were just kind of remarkable examples of the construction techniques of the time. Um, but most of those were in pretty boggy condition, so it's not yeah, surprising. Yeah, low, low tide line. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, initially, I think everybody was shocked. You know, the hair and the fatty tissue and everything that we were pulling out. And um, I think clothes, too. I think clothes. there was... I, I yes. do recall a couple, like, office um, military uniforms. Hmm. Yeah, even the bones. The bones ranged from, you know, faint outlines to very well-preserved, intact everything. I found a hyoid. Really? Yeah. Oh. And you don't find those. Yeah. That was really cool. But it was sporadic. One chef could have a hyoid bone, <laughs> and the next might have nothing at all. I just mean, a it bunch was of sludge. Yeah, it yeah, really yeah, was. The bones yeah. just turned to sludge. Yeah. And there was nothing you could. There was no. There's nothing you could do. There's with nothing that. you could do. And they were reinterred in the second cemetery that we tried because the first one had another undocumented cemetery. Oh, I forgot. Right about next that. to it, where yeah. we were going to reinter these burials. That's right. Yep, that's right. Because everybody, the the PIs went off to go look at cemetery number one, and came back and were just like, "Nope," because <laughs> they'd seen, you know, bone on the surface. Jersey needs to work on their secretary. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the lesson we're learning here. <laughs> right? If you're if you're making your final arrangements right now, I would recommend going to <laughs> Pennsylvania or New York. <laughs> after the removal of human remains, and after many forms of consultation, Bioarchaeologists and or forensic anthropologists study the bones. I asked a bioarchaeologist why she thought it was important to study bones in the first place. You know, history pulls a lot of information from from documents and what was written down was generally the exploits of higher class individuals, both because they knew how to read and write, but they also had access to the, the materials to do so. Um, that doesn't tell you a lot about what the, like, quote-unquote, normal people were doing. It's really, really great to be able to have this primary source that you can go look at someone's skeleton and actually see how someone lived. As scientists, you want to analyze the the evidence in front of you to, to reach appropriate conclusions, but yes, these people were, were human beings. At some point, you you obviously want to be respectful of that. You don't want to be, you know, de- you don't want to destroy anything. It's one of the reasons that we 
you know, pad our work surfaces is to, to protect the human remains. Mostly it's about being culturally sensitive to the, the cultural group that that individual or those individuals that you're looking at come from. People who it doesn't bother that, um, you know, beyond the kind of NLI looking at human remains, you know, it might gross me out, but who are not opposed to, to people looking at human remains. There are other cultural groups, um, especially some indigenous or native, native American groups that feel very strongly that they do not want their, the remains of their ancestors analyzed. We should 100% support the wishes of the descendants of cultural groups that do not wish for their ancestors to be uh, examined. That being said, when you do find a grave archaeologically in the course of building a new building or uh, just, you know, regular survey, excavation, whatever it is, if you do not know who it is from, I think that you need to be able to do enough very general non-destructive analysis, but that it does not benefit anyone to you know, find a skeleton, refuse to look at it, potentially give it back to the, the wrong group of people, or not be able to give it back to anyone and just have it you know, sit in storage somewhere because you're afraid it might be something, you know, and, and again, do that in as respectful and as, you know, non-destructive uh, a way as possible, you know, and just talk to people, be in, in open communication with them, respect people's wishes. It is hard. And I don't want to say that every case is different. Every person is different. That's it for this episode. Special thanks to Aaron, Sarah, Jackie, Seth, Carrie, and Chelsea, who contributed their time and stories to the podcast. The music you heard is by Pergola, So Long, Not Goodbye. Check us out on Facebook to learn more about the podcast and let us know what kind of stories you'd like to hear. Also, if you're an archaeologist and would like to contribute a tale or two, send a message to trowtalespodcast at gmail.com. Until next time! This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.